Hello, welcome back to Legends of Surgery. I'm your host, Tyler Rouse. Halloween is just around the corner, which has inspired me to take on the controversial and maybe a bit spooky subject of cephalosomatic anastomosis, also known as a head transplant. This is no longer the realm of science fiction, as at least one team has famously stated that they intend to try the first one next year. I'll go in depth on this, but before we do, there's some interesting background to cover. First, we'll look at the history of Halloween then take on the history of head transplants and look at some of the technical challenges involved. Finally, we'll talk about the science and possibilities behind what will be the first attempted human head transplant, but be warned, some of this material may be disturbing to some listeners. But if you choose to continue, then let's begin today's episode of Legends of Surgery. Alright, let's start with a bit of fun. The history of Halloween. Like many holidays celebrated in the modern era, This one, too, is a blend of a number of traditions that have been borrowed from and added to one another. Halloween is thought to have originated from the Celtic festival of Samhain, a day that marked the end of summer and the harvest and the beginning of the dark, cold winter. On the night of October 31st, the Celts believed that the boundary between the worlds of the living and the dead became blurred. The dead would return to the living world as ghosts, causing trouble and ruining crops. Huge sacred bonfires were lit, animals were sacrificed, and costumes were worn. The Celts celebrating this festival lived in what is now Ireland, the United Kingdom, and northern France, at the time that the Roman Empire met up with them. The Romans had two festivals around the same time of year, and with the Roman conquest of Celtic territory, they merged with Sowin. The first was Feralia, commemorating the passing of the dead, and Pomona, a day to honor the Roman goddess of fruit and trees. Now on May 13, 609 Common Era, Pope Gregory III created a festival on November 1st to celebrate all the Christian saints and martyrs called All Saints Day, or All Hallows Day from the Middle English, and hence the night before is All Hallows Eve, aka Halloween. You can see how parts of all these traditions merged to make our modern version. Now, okay, now on to our subject. Some of you may have already heard of Dr. Sergio Canavero, an Italian neurosurgeon, and his plan to attempt a cephalosomatic transplant, meaning he wants to transplant the head of a person with a progressive, disabling medical condition and give them a new body. He has written extensively in the medical literature on this, laying out the planned operation and covering a number of barriers that exist. One of the main ones is obviously fusion of the spinal cord from the donor body to the recipient head. Now there have been a number of head transplants done in the past, demonstrating that it is possible to reconnect the blood supply and keep the tissues alive, as well as reconnecting the trachea and esophagus for the passage of breath and nourishment. But without connecting the nervous system, there wouldn't be much benefit to the patient. So let's take a look back at some of those previous experiments and then get into the reconnection of the spinal cord. The first recorded success was by Charles Claude Guthrie, an American physiologist who grafted one dog's head onto the side of another's neck on May 21, 1908, which isn't really a head transplant as the first dog remained whole. In what is to me a fascinating connection to recently covered topics, Guthrie actually worked with Dr. Alexis Carell. I had mentioned their collaboration in my podcast on Carell, number 20, done at the University of Chicago. It was there that Carell perfected his triangulation method and other vascular and transplant work for which he won the Nobel Prize in 1912. It has been postulated that Guthrie did not also receive the Nobel because of his head transplant experiments. Next up is the Russian scientist Vladimir Petrovich Demikov. Being behind the Iron Curtain during his lifetime in the Soviet Union, he has less acclaim than maybe he deserves. Demikov worked on organ transplantation, and although his work was experimental on animals, he's credited with a number of world's firsts, including the first artificial heart, heart transplant, heart-lung transplant, lung transplant, 
and liver transplant, among other things. In fact, Christian Bernard, the South African cardiac surgeon credited with the first human heart transplant, had visited Demikhov's lab and considered him an influence. But it's Demikhov's experiments on head transplants that is our interest here. In the 1950s, he performed over 20 transplants. These had shoulders, lungs, and forelimbs, so again, not a true transplant, but more grafting part of the body onto that of another, creating, like Guthrie did, two-headed dogs. Although most only survived for two to six days, killed by immune system reactions, some lived as long as 29 days. Most disturbing is that the transplanted heads would demonstrate behavior, including drinking fluids, and one even bit the finger of a staff member drawing blood. So Demikhov's experiments inspired an American neurosurgeon named Dr. Robert J. White. On March 14th of 1970, his team at Case Western Reserve University in Cleveland, Ohio, transplanted the head of one monkey to the body of another, making this the first true head transplant. Now, because the cranial nerves were left intact, and those are the nerves that arise directly from the brain and not the spinal cord, and the blood supply to the brain was connected, the head was able to see, smell, taste, and hear, and even move the facial muscles. Apparently when the monkey awoke from the surgery, it tried to bite the finger off of an attending doctor. But of course the body was paralyzed as the spinal cord had been severed. The monkey died after nine days due to immune rejection, but another milestone on the road to human head transplants had occurred. Here's what Robert White had to say about head transplants, predicting the following. Quote, What has always been the stuff of science fiction, the Frankenstein legend in which an entire human being is constructed by sewing various body parts together, will become a clinical reality early in the 21st century. Brain transplantation, at least initially, will really be head transplantation, or body transplantation, depending on your perspective, with the significant improvements in surgical techniques and post-operative management since then, it is now possible to consider adapting the head transplant technique to humans. End quote. During the 1990s, Dr. White planned the same operation on humans and practiced on corpses. He wanted to do the surgery on some famous people, including the astrophysicist Stephen Hawking, who's paralyzed from a slow progressing form of amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, or Lou Gehrig's disease, and the actor Christopher Reeve, paralyzed from a horse riding accident and has since passed away. It should be said that Dr. White caught a lot of flack for his experiments, particularly from animal rights activists, and was called Dr. Butcher and Dr. Frankenstein. Protesters once interrupted a banquet in his honor by offering him a bloody replica of a human head, and you can argue all day about the moral and ethical dilemmas involved, which I won't get into. But all this leads us to the present, where I mentioned at the beginning of the podcast the Italian neurosurgeon Sergio Canavero, who has created a group called the Heaven Gemini International Collaborative Group in Turin, Italy. He frequently collaborates with Dr. Xiaoping Ren, a researcher and orthopedic surgeon in China, who's also involved in the first hand transplant, but that's a story for another day. So let's break down what their work has achieved and where it's going. This procedure is described in two parts. The Heaven part, which is short for Head Anastomosis Venture, is the surgical component of connecting the head and body, and the Gemini part is the subsequent spinal cord fusion. His plan would take 36 hours, cost $20 million, and involve at least 150 people, from doctors and nurses to psychologists and virtual reality engineers. This would occur in a specially designed surgical suite with two teams, one for the donor and one for the recipient, working in concert. I won't go into specific steps of the surgery, except to describe the spinal cord part, which is the real innovation. Both spinal cords will be cut by a super thin $200,000 diamond nanoblade. The ends will then be brought together and will be fused by chemicals called fusogens. Here we have the key to success, getting the cords to fuse so the brain of the patient receiving a donor body can send signals to it and eventually control it like they would their own body. 
Canavero predicts that his patient will be able to walk in three to six months after the surgery and intensive physical therapy, which is where the virtual reality part kicks in. So what are fusogens? Well, Canavero and Wren published a paper on the Gemini Spinal Cord Fusion Protocol in the journal Surgery in July of this year. This essentially reviews the known literature on spinal fusion, including experiments done on rats by Dr. Wren, where their spinal cords were cut, and then the gap was filled with polyethylene glycol, the most commonly described chemical to act as a fusogen, and one that Canavero calls the magic elixir. The rats recovered movement after eight months, and with the Gemini protocol, there would be no gap, so the potential is for recovery to occur much faster. The other part of Gemini is to apply electrical stimulation, which has been shown to accelerate neural regrowth. And I think it's worth noting that one possible additional benefit of this research may be in helping patients with spinal cord injuries. That would really be something, even if the head transplant never occurs. Okay, so the next step, described in a recently published article called Heaven, the Frankenstein Effect, is to get human data on the acute restoration of motor neuron transmission after applying the fusogens to a severed spinal cord. So basically, you have to cut a cord, apply the chemicals, and test right away to see if it can allow transmission of nerve signals to make muscles move. I don't know about you, but I don't want to volunteer for that study. What Canavero proposes is to test this out on fresh cadavers, specifically brain-dead organ donors, in the window of a few hours between death and the harvesting of organs for transplant. But wouldn't the nerves along with a patient be dead? Well, he actually cites examples from two centuries ago that prove that electrical stimulation of nerves in the recently dead can work for up to three hours, and the historical example is far too interesting not to explore. Near the end of the 18th century, the use of electricity to animate the dead fascinated both scientists and the public. Based on experiments involving applying a bimetallic arc to a dissected frog's leg causing it to move, the anatomy professor Luigi Galvani believed that he had discovered a distinct form of electricity, which he called animal electricity and was later called galvanism. This was hotly debated by Alessandro Volta, a scientist credited with the invention of the battery and where the word volt comes from. In fact, it seems that in 1800, Volta invented the voltaic pile, which was an early electric battery, to disprove Galvani. Now Giovanni Aldini, the nephew of Luigi Galvani, was determined to prove his uncle right, and he did this in a series of experiments, ironically using the voltaic pile, the most infamous of which took place at Newgate Prison. Quick side note, Newgate Prison in London, England, was originally located at the site of Newgate, one of the seven historical gates of the London Wall surrounding the city of London, and one of the six that date back to Roman times. Rebuilt in the 12th century to be used as a jail, and located at the corner of Newgate Street and Old Bailey just inside the city of London, it remained in use for 700 years, finally being demolished in 1902. Now, in 1783, it became the site of London's gallows for public executions. It was one of these executed criminals, George Forster, who was hanged for the murder of his wife and child by drowning them in Paddington Canal that he experimented on. After his hanging on January 18, 1803, Aldini demonstrated galvanism, which was described in the Newgate Calendar, a record of executions at Newgate, as follows, quote, On the first application of the process to the face, the jaws of the deceased criminal began to quiver, and the adjoining muscles were horribly contorted, and one eye was actually opened. In the subsequent part of the process, the right hand was raised and clenched, and the legs and thighs were set in motion, end quote. These experiments led many to believe that electricity might be the life force, and discussions of this and the reanimation of dead bodies inspired Mary Shelley to write her classic novel Frankenstein. In fact, Canavero calls the use of a fresh cadaver as a proxy for a live subject, as long as that window of opportunity, meaning less than three hours, is respected, and its implication, 
that the process of deathly disintegration is not immediate as the Frankenstein effect. So where does this all leave us? Well, a person has stepped forward to offer himself as the first head transplant patient. His name is Valery Spiridonov, a 30-year-old Russian computer programmer that has Werdig-Hoffman disease, a fatal disease causing profound muscle weakness and wasting. This could happen as early as December of next year, 2017. Very controversial, it could either be a total disaster or usher in a new era of possibilities to treat patients with incurable diseases. Will this lead to keeping people alive indefinitely? by being able to replace their failing bodies, or even to bring back to life those who have been cryogenically frozen? One famous example, the baseball player Ted Williams, truly has been cryogenically frozen, but another famous one, and I didn't realize this, Walt Disney actually was not. But as bioethicists point out, the body is a real part of the human self. Now how would the person incorporate this new body into an already existing body image? And how would it affect their strong implications on human identity? These are certainly fascinating, if uncharted, waters, and as always we are left wondering if this is another example of a true innovator being doubted by the establishment, or simply a false hope, an idea that will remain in the world of Frankenstein and science fiction. Only time will tell. Now that wraps up another episode of Legends of Surgery. I hope you enjoyed it. The next episode will be out on November 4th, just four days before the U.S. presidential election. So I thought I would cover times when presidents had been operated upon. There are a few really interesting stories be sure to have a listen. Please rate the podcast on iTunes and leave a comment there. Follow me on Twitter at Surgery Legends. Like us on Facebook at Legends of Surgery or send an email to legendsofsurgery at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you about your thoughts on the podcast or ideas for future episodes. And as always, thanks for listening. Thank you.